The Tom Woods Show, episode 1249. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if your homeschooling program is just not working out for you, it's never too late to join the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum and get $160 worth of free bonuses when you join through my link, ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Absolutely delighted to welcome Gene Epstein back to the program. Gene is recently retired from Barron's, and he is the director of the Soho Forum, and no doubt we'll have an opportunity to say something about that. But he had an article very recently about the career of economist Joseph Stiglitz, and you may not know that much about this particular economist, but he is one of these celebrity economists. He's very, very well known, and Gene as politely as possible, eviscerates him. And I think this is important because it reveals something about the kind of people who are presented to us as celebrity economists, the kind of people we are taught to admire and hold in high regard. And I just, I look at a career like this and can't for the life of me understand what it is I'm supposed to admire about it. And when you hear the kinds of positions this fellow has taken, I think you'll understand what I'm driving at. So, I'm going to leave Gene to introduce uh, Stiglitz to you, and then it's off to the races. I'll link to Gene's article on this at tomwoods.com slash 1249. Gene, welcome back. Uh, Tom, uh, happy uh, to be back with you, and uh, thanks very much, uh, by the way, for that uh, interview the other day with Michael Rechtenwald of NYU. Anybody who didn't listen to that interview you did should listen to it. Michael Rechtenwald is at NYU, and I live and work practically on the NYU campus. So I'm going to beat you to the punch about taking him out uh, for a meal. We're meeting for breakfast on me uh, tomorrow morning. Michael Rechtenwald. People should look up that interview you did, The Professor Everybody Shuns, on the Tom Woods Show. Thank you. It's episode 1244. You yeah. must listen to it. If, if you looked at the topic and thought, I don't know what this is, I'm just going to skip it. You skipped what some people are saying is one of the best episodes ever. So make a note to yourself after you're done listening to Gene and me today. Definitely was one of the best episodes ever. And I even throw in the 14 episodes I've done with Tom. It could even edge uh, out those. Uh, that, <laughs> let, let me, come on, let's not, let's not go no, berserk here. Going, over, going overboard. Okay. Okay. <laughs> now let's say one other quick thing before we jump into our topic. And that is, as we record this, we're at the very end of September, 2018. And yeah. next month, is it October 15th? Yeah, October okay. 15th. Yeah. Monday, October 15th. Yes. Okay, you're doing a special debate with the Soho yeah. Forum. And yeah. in this case, you're even changing the venue because you expect such a large crowd because yeah. it's, it's basically socialism versus capitalism. Yes. And because the crowd is so large, it is simply impractical to do the Tom Woods free drink arrangement. So if you go up to Gene, as you, as most listeners will now recall, yeah. if they see you at one of these events, they just say Tom Woods and you get a free drink. Well, not in October. It's going to have to yeah. just be enough that you're there and enjoying yourself because you're at a momentous event. But it will resume in November because we'll be back to the Subculture Theater on Bleecker Street. This time it's going to be at a 600-seat theater at the John Jay College, the Gerald Lynch Theater. That's on uh, 59th between 10th and 11th Avenue. So uh, very appealing to the New Jersey crowd, the New Jersey fans who can quickly cross the bridge and come down the highway and find parking. That, uh, But indeed, there are like 20,000, 30,000 
socialists in Manhattan alone, and we want to accommodate at least a few of them. So they will be there. It'll be a terrific mixed crowd. So please come. And will it open as normal with Dave Smith? Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, Dave has promised he'll come. Uh, he missed us once. And I said, Dave, uh, the hardest crowd you're going to work. More than half the audience will probably be socialists. Let me see if you can make them laugh. Yeah. And that's going to be his challenge. I know. So that's the, the last time we had the gun debate, I thought, I mean, Dave just outdid himself for nine minutes of stand-up. Um, look, he, he gets the intellectual property. The nine minutes of Dave at my various debates could be a fantastic collection. How he manages to tell topical jokes, <laughs> that no matter what the debate topic, that's amazing. So he's going to tell socialism and capitalism jokes before a bunch of socialists, not to be missed. <laughs> and let's let's not sell ourselves short, Gene. There will be a bunch of libertarians there, too. I feel yeah, sure yeah, of it. definitely. Yeah. No, we have a big, yeah, no, no, it's good. It's going to be a huge trend. I, I do have a bit of a following at my solo forum. So, uh, you know, the libertarians who support the solo forum are definitely coming out on mass as well. So uh, they'll, we'll all be there. All right. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Sure. Let's, let's talk about the, uh, a man actually who recently participated in an event at the Soho Forum, if I'm that's not right. mistaken, and yes. that's Joe Stiglitz. And we're yes. going to talk about his career. Yes. Just start off by telling people who exactly he is and why it would be worth talking about him at all. Well, uh, yeah, you know, look, it all started, I guess, a while back when I was leaving Barron's. I had lunch uh, with the editors uh, at uh, City Journal at the Manhattan Institute. And uh, I told them, you know, I'm a, I'm a big numbers guy. I do a lot of macro stuff. And uh, I should even segue and say that, uh, that, that Bob Murphy does incredible stuff with the numbers, as in that book that, you, that I listen to every day that he wrote called Contra Recruitment. I told them that. And uh, they said, well, uh, let me do something colorful, like let, let's talk about a prominent economist. And they said, Krugman, look, Krugman is hopeless. He's been done. I said, well, what about Joe Stiglitz? Uh, Joe Stiglitz uh, is a Nobel Prize winner. Uh, and in a way, uh, he, he he's almost is the best and the brightest of the Keynesians. Uh, since uh, Bob has already done Krugman, uh, I felt uh, that in a way I'm doing an even more important Bet Noir, who's won a, a Nobel, because uh, Stiglitz has had much more influence, direct influence, than Krugman in, in high policy circles. Uh, Stiglitz uh, is, has been, uh, he was chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, under Bill Clinton. He then went on to become chief economist with the World Bank. He's, a, he's an advisor to Elizabeth Warren, uh, and uh, he uh, he could have a final act if uh, if Warren runs and takes the White House. So he's not going to go away. He has published over thirty books. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he had the lead review in the New York Times. Uh, and so, in terms of uh, being an influential policy economist, he was a guy who was a private audience with Hugo Chavez of Venezuela in October of two thousand seven. Uh, so he does get around in way that in ways that. Krugman has not. Here's a guy who's hired by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 2002 to evaluate their mortgages um, So and gets paid a six-figure sum to do it. And so he's sort of like the, the, the Zelig of economic policy, Zelig being that, that Woody Allen movie, the guy is everywhere in history. Uh, Stiglitz is, is like behind the scenes. He's He's been, uh, been there, done that, and uh, been in a lot of places. And you mentioned the So Forum. Uh, it was actually 
actually that I had lunch with William Easterly uh, to do uh, to help to ask him for help research on my article about Stiglitz. Easterly had been a staff economist at the World Bank when Stiglitz was made chief economist, so they'd known each other for years. Easterly put me into a lot of interesting sources, indeed told me that Stiglitz's uh, involvement with Hugo Chavez is not the first human rights abuser and economic strongman that Stiglitz gets involved with. And then through Easterly, Easterly wanted to debate Stiglitz, and through Easterly, we managed to negotiate uh, Joseph Stiglitz's appearance at the SOA Forum, but it was a different event his wife insisted that it not be a debate, but a conversation. And I think look, the honor of having Joe Stiglitz at the Soul Forum was enough. So we didn't make it a formal Oxford-style Oxford debate, just a conversation. I'm sure you'd understand, uh, Tom, that if Krugman wanted to appear and have a conversation with Bob Murphy, then we'd say, okay, conversation, no debate. I'm sure you'd understand that I'd give up on that requirement if I could only get him to appear with Bob. But I did get... Stiglitz to appear uh, with uh, with Easterly. It was a little bit disappointing, but uh, at least uh, we did have an interesting exchange at the Soho Forum. But then most recently, my article about Stiglitz has come out and been published by um, the Manhattan Institute. So that's why I'm writing about him. He's a figure to be reckoned with. Well, let's, given that we're talking about Easterly yeah. in connection with the Soho Forum, sure. let's yeah. mention that it was Stiglitz who, I guess, in 2007 yeah. had uh, kind words for the, I guess, Zanawi, the Ethiopian dictator. Milas Zanawi, yeah, Milas. You know, what I was taught that if he's called Milas Zanawi, then he's referred to as Milas, not never by his last name. He easterly taught me that when he went over my draft. Go ahead, though, Milas Zanawi, yes. Okay, see, I, it goes to show I'm not up on my Ethiopian dictators at all, Gene. <laughs> Not at right. all. Right. Well, Easterly, though, what's interesting is that he yeah. put out a correction, more or no, less, okay. in his yeah. own book. Well, well I, yeah, exactly. Yes, go ahead. And, yeah. and so, you know, implicitly correcting uh, Stiglitz, oh, who, yeah. you know, was fawning over the guy, saying, yeah. well, you know, he does have this tendency to gun people down, yeah. uh, things like that. So it would have been neat to see the two of them in the same room, and it would have been nice to have them debate, because if I were Easterly, you darn well better believe I would have brought this up. Oh, by the way, how's your uh, Ethiopian dictator buddy doing? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I would not have pulled any punches on any of this stuff. But the, the key figure we really want to talk about, though, is the other dictator you mentioned. That's Hugo Chavez, because yes. Stieglitz was like one of these dime a dozen economists, who progressive economists, who was praising the policies of, of, of Chavez, which he said would lead to strong economic growth. Yes. And yes. obviously, Eugene, it didn't turn out that way. No, no. Uh, but first, let's discuss Milas. Uh uh, he did die in 2002, so we know how how is he resting in peace? Is what Easterly could have said and should have said, but was a little bit too polite to say it. But but here is Stiglitz writing in the New York Times uh, about Milas Zanawi and saying that he gets showered with economic aid because people trust him to know what to do with that aid to help his own country. And Easterly wrote that two years before, in 2005, even the aid groups had decided not to send money to Milas because he had gunned down hundreds of protesters in his own country. And so Stiglitz was so misinformed about Milas Zanawi. So it was the exact reverse. The, uh, the, the aid groups were actually trying to channel aid to local officials 
in Ethiopia. Now, that that turned out to be hopeless, as Easterly points out, because anything that went to the local groups, Zanawi got his hands on anyway. However, again, this is Stiglitz. You can't even Google, can't even look the guy up uh, because he's cozying up to him. He gets to meet with him. He goes to Ethiopia. I mean, it's very clear. Look, we can all sort of understand that, you know, it gets you a little bit titillated to be close to power. And uh, and that was Stiglitz. So he, so so the, the, the most elementary facts about Zanawi are completely overlooked by Stiglitz. The fact that the, that the aid groups are actually trying to shun him at that point. But now getting to Chavez, uh, here too, uh, what I want, what, what I tried to do was make it clear that I'm not trying to operate with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, it's now been widely acknowledged, even in the New York Review of Books, left, left-leaning publication, that, 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 that there's a humanitarian crisis, a major proportions been afflicting uh, Venezuela and the Venezuelan people. Uh, but my point is that it's easy enough to show that when Stiglitz met with Hugo Chavez in October uh, of 2007, just the month before, there was readily available information, uh, not just from the Economic Freedom Index put out by Fraser and Cato, but by the World Bank, uh, the Doing Business Index that the World Bank had been publishing since 2004. Uh, and uh, they actually had a prominent discussion of their concerns about what was going on in Venezuela. I mean, st- that's the month before he met with Chavez, uh, where they're pre- they are talking about the chokehold that that uh, that Hugo Chavez has on the economy. That's the month before he meets with Chavez. And that's the World Bank where Stiglitz had been chief economist. How is he not going to get access to that information? Newspaper reports. The Washington Post had been publishing articles about the price controls on food, 400 food prices that were driving housewives crazy in Venezuela at the time. And and, uh, and so the, the oil price was up to 80 bucks. It had been at 10 bucks, uh, 80 bucks a barrel. It had been at 10 bucks when Chavez took over. And what was the soundest advice? You get an audience with this guy Chavez, and you, do you want to tell him something? You're a Nobel Prize winning economist. You might want to tell him, look, you know, you're riding the, the wave of a high oil price. You're a major oil producer, but to be a, a responsible steward of your country, you can't count on oil prices continuing to go up or even continuing to stay high. You've got to loosen your chokehold on the economy. Couldn't he have told that, said that to Chavez if he had an ounce of sense or an ounce of responsibility? The information was plain and palpable. And that's exactly what he did not do. He endorsed Chavez a commitment to higher growth. There was somebody from the audience, by the way, at my solo forum who raised this question with him. Bill Easterly to my great dismay, I wrote Bill about this, was very, very easy on Stiglitz. But a question came up from the audience and Stiglitz just tried to finesse it. And he said, well, I was hoping, I was hoping that things would work out at the time. And that's why I said it. But again, the major point was that it was clear, clear that the, that the Venezuelan economy was headed for deep trouble. By the way, I want to mention also, as I, as I point out in the article, that this idea of blaming uh, Venezuela's troubles on the collapse in the oil price is a little overdone. I mean, for, for the past 
past few, several years, the oil prices averaged $55 a barrel, relatively high in historical terms. There really was no oil price collapse. There was a brief period in which the price touched $26, $27, but the average price over two, three years, even through the period of the trough, was $55 historically quite high, a lot higher than the 1990s and a lot higher than the $10 when uh, when Chavez took office. So really, the disasters in Venezuela uh, are certainly certainly something that, uh, that should haunt uh, Joseph Stiglitz. Maybe, at least he could have said, I had the ear of this guy and I had the opportunity at least to tell him that he's got to got to march in the opposite direction from what he's been doing. That's exactly what he didn't do. He did the opposite. And that that should be something that he lives with and struggles with and tries to overcome, but instead he's in a state of denial. All right, let's talk about another big problem. I mean, yeah. Venezuela is a major one. Yeah. And there are, I can find many people who had nice things to say about the policies of Venezuela. I can also find many people of which Stiglitz is yet again, just another uh, lemming as far as I can see. I mean, he's right. supposed to be this great celebrity, but he has every fashionable wrong opinion you can imagine. So <laughs> leading up to the financial crisis, yeah. well, his view was, we just need – he says – this is his profound insight. Effective regulation requires regulators who believe in it. Yeah. They, I mean what, what is this? And so he, <laughs> he thinks that if we have enough regulators – now, and I always point out between state and federal, we had 115 regulatory institutions yes. in the financial sector on the eve of the financial crisis. Yeah. And we had in, – in the banking and financial sector, we had – a threefold increase, even accounting for inflation, a threefold increase in in the number of regulators, actual employees mm -hmm. regulated, you know, to regulate the industry. Yeah. Uh, so we had plenty of regulators. We had plenty of regulations. I don't buy that there was major deregulation in any any area that is relevant to the crisis. Quite and right. yet, that's how he walked. That's how he walked into two thousand eight with this view, and he yeah. described himself as a crisis veteran or a crisologist. Yes. But as you point out, well, he wrote a study in. August of 96, some lessons from the East Asian miracle, which totally failed to anticipate the East Asian crisis the following year. How good of a prognosticator is he? Yeah, no, indeed. And, and uh, you know, in 07, uh, I mean, that's something he doesn't mention. And, in 07, and, uh, and at that point, uh, when he was talking about the miracle and how the miracle would be sustaining and it's a tribute to the role of government, there were others who were dissenting. But but the big thing is uh, that uh, in 2002, he was hired by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, uh, along with two others, uh, to evaluate uh, the, the mortgages that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac uh, owned. Now, again, for background, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are officially called government-sponsored enterprises. So that sort of says it all. <laughs> and, you know, it's a great crony capitalist word that, that, that the bureaucrats have thought up and, uh, and they, they play right into our hands. It was, they were publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange, but they were, they, they were basically government-backed. We know they were government-backed. Actually, look, I could quote Tom Woods, you know, your book, Meltdown, Tom. Everybody knew uh, that Fannie and Freddie's debt uh, would be protected, was, was protected by government. And you're right, everybody was right. And the reason why everybody knew that is that they were borrowing money at, at, at barely uh, much of a premium above the treasury rate. And so they were, they, they, and yet they were, uh, they were responding mostly positively and favorably 
to the mandates of HUD, of of Department of Housing and Urban Development, to continually buy mortgages that were being issued to people below the median income. And year after year, it was like 50% of their mortgages had to be bought with this proviso. And very soon, very soon when you continually do that, you're going to get, you're going to be acquiring mortgages uh, that are risky. You're going to have to loosen the standards uh, on the mortgages that you do buy if it's constantly people below the median income. A policy pushed by Bill Clinton and picked up enthusiastically by George W. Bush. And so Fannie and Freddie, being very political, uh, decided that they wanted a prestigious economist uh, to evaluate their mortgages and give them uh, a clean uh, bill of health. And uh, that's what he did. And rumors are he got paid a six-figure sum for that. Uh, hard to imagine that he didn't. They, they were throwing a fortune of money around. But again, here, focusing, I want to get to your point about regulation in a moment, but here, focusing on 2002, again, I'm trying not to condemn Stiglitz with the benefit of hindsight. The American Enterprise Institute, uh, the whole project is supervised by Peter Wallison, whom I know you've had on the show a couple of times, yeah. uh, Tom, yeah. and uh, did a very good book. A lot of good books. Tom's book is one of them. Peter Wallison's book, Hidden in Plain Sight, is another. Uh, the, the Wallison project with Ed Pinto was to compile a complete universe count of all of the mortgages held by government, by the private sector. So they have a complete dossier at this point on all the mortgages held by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac year by year. And so I found out, well, what was held? I asked their source, tell me, give me the profile on what was held in 2001. Because the 2001 book is what Stiglitz certainly would have had access to having done this study in 2002. The 2001 book was already showing alarming tendencies for, for the GSEs to, to the, 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 the uh, Fannie and Freddie, who are supposed to be setting the standard for quality mortgages, already showing that that uh, that their mortgage mortgage book was was being was subject to risk, that they were taking chances, that these were the down payments, other uh, other uh, other due diligence. The, the mortgage book was already beginning to look disturbing. By oh, by oh two oh three and oh four, it got much worse, but but the tendencies was there. And anybody who, any consultant, certainly a Nobel Prize winner, who's going to do due diligence has got to say, well, I've got to look at the book. I've got to put, you know, some research assistance on it. Uh, let's take a look. Uh, so he he would have, if he had been honest, he would have released a study that would have said that you're beginning to abrogate your standards of safety and soundness. Uh, it's not it's not serious at this point, but but you're moving in the wrong direction. You've got to do a correction on this. Something's going wrong. Now, of course, he would have known and should have known that the reason it was happening was the mandates from HUD. Uh, and so it would have been plain enough. His report would have been plain enough, obvious enough. Instead, he releases a report uh, which says that uh, that the, that the mortgages are safe and sound. There's practically zero risk of ever any default. Uh, they, they're, they're given an, an A plus plus, a gold star. Totally contrary to the, to the obvious facts of what was in the mortgages, clear enough that Stiglitz never even bothered uh, to examine the book of mortgages because that's not what he was being paid to do. 
Now, there too, uh, who knows, if a Nobel Prize winner, this is, this is the sort of thing that, that Krugman doesn't get access to, that you and I don't get access to. Uh, uh, we, didn't, we didn't know, I, I was covering the situation, I didn't know what was going on. The, Fannie and Freddie were misreporting uh, their mortgages. And, uh, Inside Mortgage Finance, the Bible of the, of the trade, by the way, was, was saying that by definition, we're already putting numbers that said, by definition, anything that Fannie and for, for Freddie bought had to be a low-risk mortgage. That, w- that was reporting by definition. That, uh, I happen to know that because I, I went to the offices of Inside Mortgage Finance, so we didn't know. But Stiglitz had access to it. He could have known. Uh, and, uh, and yet, this is what he reports. Maybe he could have made a difference. Maybe not. At least he could have, been, he, he could have shaken uh, the temple a little bit. It could have done some good. Instead, he does exactly the reverse. And then, uh, of course, then this is, of course, the odd part of it, which is that Stiglitz does not list this study on his exhaustive resume. The, the study of, of, of Fannie and Freddie's mortgages was pulled from the website, and it was only a few indefatigable economists and researchers who downloaded it and, and have it. So that's why I was able to, to get a copy of it. Uh, but Stiglitz then has the, has the goal to call himself a brilliant Christologist when he's got both of these things on his record, have, have, having having said that, having talked about the sustainable miracle in Asia less than 12 months before the meltdown in Asia, and then having talked about Fannie and Freddie's mortgages, and and then on top of that, having the goal to say that we need we need regulators with PhDs. Uh, we need people who have worked for non-governmental organizations and and had experience in government. So basically, we need people like Stiglitz. And as you just said, Tom, the only thing you didn't add is that all of these regulatory agencies are pretty well staffed with people with PhDs. And, and those are the people we need. Uh, people like Stiglitz. So, I mean, it's such a colossal joke, but but actually, uh, I mean, the other part of it uh, is that I quote, so clearly uh, we don't need these people. Uh, and uh, and actually, uh, I do quote uh, from a book that takes an interesting Hayekian line on this whole point. Interestingly enough, they sort of go easy on Stiglitz and, and, and the scandals of his involvement uh, with uh, with Fannie and Freddie and with the housing bubble, but they go easy in that way, but they make a very good sort of abstract Hayekian point, which is that uh, which is that uh, that if you leave it to the market that, that then then there will be differing opinions that there will be a certain amount of due diligence about what's risky and what's not the, 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 some banks some financial institutions may be loading up on mortgages but others might not there will be a blend of opinion it will be heterogeneous because there'll be sort of the Hayekian information coming from different sources and there'll be more of a burden on on markets to a Evaluate the mortgages that existed, but then when you have a one-size-fits-all regulator, and and the, the the regulators in fact were giving banks incentives to load up on mortgages because they had the impression these PhDs actually, as a group, had the impression that mortgages were a relatively safe investment, and so that that's a kind of an abstract point correcting Stiglitz, which gets back indeed to his whole indictment of markets versus government, that that markets consist of different kinds of dispersed information and are likely to make much better judgments about such things as government mortgages than regulators are likely to make.
Let me take just a minute to address those members of my audience, and they know who they are, who are like me, and have a giant stack of books next to their bed, right? And then that pile becomes two piles and three piles. And you think, I'm never going to get to these. The way to solve that problem is with an amazing app called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to the most important elements. So you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. So with Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge and learn more in just 15 minutes than you can in almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. I'm always taking the kids hither and yon, so I like to listen when I'm in the car. The Blinkist library is massive, ranging from timeless classics like Think and Grow Rich to current bestsellers like Skin in the Game. As a matter of fact, right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com woods right now to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com woods to start your free trial today. Blinkist.com woods. Now, look, I'm not saying that in order for me to take you seriously as an economist, you had to predict the 2008 crisis. Yeah. But I am saying that if you're going to be a celebrity economist, yeah. then you better have something more to say than just standard platitudes all the time. I mean, you yeah. better have something to show for yourself other than cheering on dictators in the yeah. third world. I mean, you better have something clever and interesting. And then when when you're reckoning with ideas you don't agree with, at least show some familiarity with them. And you sent me a section from your article that didn't appear in the published version yeah. where he says that, well, Hayek's view that markets always act efficiently is contradicted by – where does – of all people, Hayek say that. Yeah. Uh, Hayek and Mises' view was – Obviously not that, but that because of an uncertain future, entrepreneurs are always adjusting and you know shifting resources around in light of what they anticipate future conditions to be, but they're never going to get it quite right. So yeah. we're, there's always – that's what entrepreneurs are constantly doing. They're constantly adjusting. We don't get to some equilibrium point where we say, okay, everything's all adjusted. Now everybody go home. Yes. But so he thinks that's what we think even though it's pretty clear. I mean, you don't have to read much Mises or Hayek to understand that. Yeah. Well – Okay, this indeed gets into uh, the problems uh, with the mainstream generally. I mean, I do, I say, I say perhaps with a certain amount of irony, uh, uh, tongue in cheek, that it is indeed true uh, that in a way Stiglitz claim that his, uh, his information economics, uh, his market failure uh, orientation was a kind of a paradigm shift. You know, it's a paradigm shift from the ersatz models of perfect competition perpetrated by the mainstream. Uh, and uh, so that's really what he's addressing. But certainly it's fair to say that his mention of Hayek, uh, his mention of of, uh, of James Buchanan, in fact, or even of George Stigler, had an odd, George Stigler, the Chicago economist, had an odd kind of uh, history because Stigler was a kind of a perfect, perfectly competition-oriented economist uh, who uh, who did tend to think that markets, uh, you know, have markets have this abstract, pristine kind of behavior. Uh, on the other hand, Stigler did also uh, could lay claim to the idea of regulatory capture uh, of the fact that regulators tend to be captured by the very businesses they're supposed to be running. And of course, Buchanan uh, and uh, his idea of uh, public choice as distinct from private choice that they are applying uh, to the government. Uh, 
the stand the the the, the basic uh, principle that they too are operating in their own self-interest. Uh, all of that useful correctives to the standard idea that uh, that Stiglitz uh, perpetrates, which is that markets fail and that government must step in and correct them because, after all, they consist of PhDs such as himself. And then, uh, and then Hayek and Mises, uh, who, uh, and indeed, by the way, you know, I've recently uh, be, uh, been reading some Israel Kirzner, and I think that Kirzner's, uh, Kirzner to some degree has been misrepresented. I mean, Kirzner's, Kirzner's of course, emphasized, emphasis on entrepreneurial error being rife, and that markets are always in error, and, and always being corrected by other entrepreneurs. Uh, a very, 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 very strong emphasis on that point by uh, Israel Kirzner, uh, which indeed can be found in Mises and in Hayek, uh, and, uh, and, and so it's nothing like the idea, it's really just the, the, the point that, uh, that you cannot expect human beings, and I, I, I had a quote, I'm not going to click for it, Tom, because I was clicking on my screen, but I did have a quote from Mises in Human Action, in which he, he talks about the expectation that, uh, that these superhuman beings uh, in markets are supposedly correcting uh, entrepreneurial error on a kind of hourly basis. And he said, of course, that never happens. Markets are always making mistakes and are in error. But their virtue is that when a market is in error, uh, when, uh, when certain prices, when certain uh, goods are underpriced or overpriced, or indeed when uh, when markets are being myopic, and uh, and when when somebody like Jeff Bezos comes along and realizes that books can be sold online or can be shipped electronically onto a Kindle, and that topples bricks and mortar bookstores, all of that is something that happens only in markets, and uh, that government is not self-correcting, uh, and uh, and is far, far more prone to error, and that's the basic fallacy of Stiglitz's approach. Uh, indeed, uh, the, the odd and almost hilarious, uh, self, self-evidently hilarious part of it is that in his writings, he's constantly focusing on something called the arrow Dubru model, Kenneth Arrow and, and an economist named Dubru, who formulated this model that he says, oh, is the real, the real, uh, uh, you know, the real gold standard of how markets are supposed to behave. And we're so grateful to them for showing us that markets just almost never behave this way, are always falling short, and that's why we need government. Well, just, you know, you, you think that even if you're just naively reading this, you might ask, well, don't you realize you've got to apply the same kind of arrow to brew model to government? You know, that the same pristine perfection should be applied to government. And then when you ask yourself about all the corruption in government, the myopia in government, uh, the, the tendency for bureaucracies uh, to grow and persist, uh, all of the problems with government, then, then, then any kind of arrow to brew model you, you apply to government has got to find them far more lacking. And yet, and so my point, by the way, is that even from the get-go, it's very clear, should be clear, that Stiglitz was mar- marching in the wrong direction, uh, and uh, that uh, that his whole focus was wrong, uh, and uh, and that and now he did he did far more harm as policymaker than we might have imagined. What with his involvement with Chavez when he should have known better, and his endorsement. Of Fannie and Freddie, when due diligence would have shown that they were in trouble, but because this whole uh, mindset 
defines him. And of course, the people who have this mindset, really, we have to get a little bit psychological on him. He certainly is attracted to power. That's why he was attracted to Milos Zanawi. Uh, and look, you know, I think you all of us can understand that. It is a little seductive uh, to be at the tables of power. Uh, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we can all retain enough integrity uh, to resist that. And, you know, in a way, my own personal digression is that uh, Noam Chomsky's still alive. I didn't send him this article. I, I would have said, Noam, I, should, I would write Noam Chomsky and say, you know, Noam, when I read your book, American Power and the New Mandarins, when I was in my 20s, uh, back in the 1960s, uh, you were the one who clued me in to the fact that the intellectuals in foreign policy loved to sit at the tables of power and were basically celebrating power. Uh, and that that's why so many of the things that they said and did were ludicrously foolish. Uh, and uh, so I'm writing in your tradition. I only wish Chomsky could understand that, but unfortunately, he still held on to his socialism. So, uh, so I can't. But in a way, this article is dedicated, ironically, to Noam Chomsky, calling, uh, blowing the whistle on, a, on a, an economic Mandarin uh, who, uh, who was never right, always wrong, and always pushing us in the wrong direction. All right. I want to ask you for a 60-second answer to the final okay. question, which is sure. – We've looked at one particular economist today. Yeah. But are there any general conclusions we can draw either about progressivism or Keynesianism or the left or anything from this particular case? Well, sure. I mean, I, again, I, I try to argue, look, this guy won the Nobel Prize. He's written 30 books, uh, numerous articles, uh, peer-reviewed articles. His articles have appeared in the American Economic Review. Um, and so uh, the whole point is that it's in, it's in the Keynesian tradition. I mean, John Maynard Keynes wasn't, oh God, you only gave me 60 seconds, Tom, but I'm going to Take another 60. All right, go ahead. John Maynard Keynes was in the tradition. Of the, in, in 1938, John Maynard Keynes endorsed Soviet socialism, and he, and, and, and he recommended his book to the Nazi totalitarians. Uh, this whole tradition uh, is this whole myopic tradition uh, that, that government must come to the rescue of markets um, is something that Sticklet stands for. And, and it's the whole reason why, uh, why, why the mainstream tradition missed out. We, we needed Tom Woods, a non guy with a PhD in history, but not an economist, to write a very good book on the meltdown. And indeed, Peter Walzen, by the way, is a lawyer, uh, wrote another very good book on, on, on what really happened to the housing bubble. Oh, and he uh, knows an enormous amount yes, about this stuff. Yes, yes. And so, so the whole point is that I, I'm trying to go after the best, the best and the brightest, the guy who was really up there, Joseph Stiglitz. So if, if Joseph Stiglitz, could, with this mindset, could miss so much that was obvious, and could overlook so much that that is obvious. Now, isn't it, uh, then wouldn't you shudder to think what some of the lesser lights of, in in the Keynesian tradition what they miss and what they get wrong? So that's the lesson to be drawn. And then, of course, in, in a topical sense, Joseph Stiglitz could have a final act. He is working with Elizabeth Warren. We might hear from him again. He is going to be, he would be 78 years old when, if Elizabeth Warren takes the White House, but those guys do tend to last. Greenspan was serving as chairman of the Federal Reserve until past 80. Paul Volcker was still around. We could hear from him again. All right, Gene, I'm going to let you go, but I want to, first of all, let people know that your article on Stiglitz will be available at tomwoods.com slash 1249. And secondly, that they should, 
if they're anywhere near New York City. I mean, look, I come to New York from Florida half the time yes. to go to Soho Forum events. If you're one subway ride away, shame on you for not attending. And with the exception of October's event, you can get a free drink by just saying Tom Woods to Gene. The website there is thesohoforum.org, and it's just one of the best things about living in New York City. Gene, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Tom. Bye-bye. All right, folks, before I let you go, you know my practice whereby I'll help get people free traffic and give them publicity for their brand new website as long as they get their web hosting through my link. And they get an excellent deal through that link, by the way. And there are other benefits too, like membership in a private bloggers group I run and stuff like that. Well, the one for today is highly unusual and very interesting. The long and the short of it is, it's a woman named Jane Horvath who had learned all she could with traditional genealogical research about her Hungarian and Polish ancestors. And she wanted to use DNA to help find her roots, but she was worried about privacy issues. Then she found out that her DNA, along with samples from both of her children, had already been taken by the state without her permission. So she really wanted to take a DNA test. She wanted to know what information do they have. And she says, the government already has your DNA on file. You should own a copy too. So in an unexpected twist, she figured out how to use DNA data for good and decided to go into business as a genetic genealogist. She solves decades-old family mysteries and helps adoptees identify their birth parents. Her area of expertise is Central European ancestry, and the resources on her site may be helpful to anybody whose forebears were among the 20 million Europeans who came to the United States between 1880 and 1920. Her how-to guides and articles on DNA testing and privacy can all be found at janesgenes.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-G-E-N-E-S.com. Now, Jane's husband is Jake Town, and some of you may know him from the Ron Paul days. He's got a blog at jaketown, J-A-K-E-T-O-W-N-E.com. He ran as an independent for U.S. Congress in 2010 during the Ron Paul Revolution. And... In 2013, he registered as a libertarian, and he's been an elected libertarian for over five years. And on his blog, he talks about the sort of topics you would expect, liberty, politics, economics, but also unschooling, public schools. He and his wife homeschool slash unschool their children. So a lot of interesting stuff over at jaketown.com. So janesjeans.com and jaketown.com I recommend to you today. So I will link to those at tomwoods.com slash 1249. And if you want to get this kind of publicity, get the details at tomwoods.com slash publicity. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.